This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Diana Keisner's The Enchanted April by Elizabeth von Arnhem Chapter 8 Presently, when Mrs. Wilkins and Mrs. Arbuthnot, unhampered by any duties, wandered out and down the worn stone steps and under the pergola into the lower garden, Mrs. Wilkins said to Mrs. Arbuthnot, who seemed pensive, "'Don't you see that if somebody else does the ordering, it frees us?' Mrs. Arbuthnot said she did see, but nevertheless she thought it rather silly to have everything taken out of their hands. "'I love things to be taken out of my hands,' said Mrs. Wilkins. "'But we found San Salvatore,' said Mrs. Arbuthnot, "'and it is rather silly that Mrs. Fisher should behave as if it belonged only to her. "'What is rather silly,' said Mrs. Wilkins with much serenity, "'is to mind. "'I can't see the least point in being in authority.' at the price of one's liberty. Mrs. Arbuthnot said nothing to that for two reasons. First, because she was struck by the remarkable and growing calm of the hitherto incoherent and excited Lottie, and secondly, because what she was looking at was so very beautiful. All down the stone steps on either side were periwinkles in full flower, and she could now see what it was that had caught at her the night before and brushed, wet and scented across her face. It was wisteria. Wisteria and sunshine. She remembered the advertisement. Here indeed were both in profusion. The wisteria was tumbling over itself in its excess of life, its prodigality of flowering, and where the pergola ended the sun blazed on scarlet geraniums, bushes of them, and nasturtiums in great heaps, and marigolds so brilliant that they seemed to be burning, and red and pink snapdragons all outdoing each other in bright, fierce color. The ground behind these flaming things dropped away in terraces to the sea, each terrace a little orchard, where among the olives grew vines on trellises, and fig trees, and peach trees, and cherry trees. The cherry trees and peach trees were in blossom, lovely showers of white and deep rose color among the trembling delicacy of the olives. The fig leaves were just big enough to smell of figs, the vine buds were only beginning to show, and beneath these trees were groups of blue and purple irises, and bushes of lavender and grey, sharp cactuses. And the grass was thick with dandelions and daisies, and right down at the bottom was the sea. Color seemed flung down anyhow, anywhere, every sort of color piled up in heaps, pouring along in rivers. The periwinkles looked exactly as if they'd been poured down each side of the steps. And flowers that grow only in borders in England— 
proud flowers keeping themselves to themselves over there, such as the great blue irises and the lavender, were being jostled by small, shining common things like dandelions and daisies, and the white bells of the wild onion, and only seemed the better and the more exuberant for it. They stood looking at this crowd of loveliness, this happy jumble in, in silence. No, it didn't matter what Mrs. Fisher did. Not here, not in such beauty. Mrs. Arbuthnot's discomposure melted out of her. In the warmth and light of what she was looking at, of what to her was a manifestation and entirely new side of God, how could one be discomposed? If only Frederick were with her seeing it too, seeing as he would have seen it when first they were lovers, in the days when he saw what she saw and loved what she loved. She sighed. You mustn't sigh in heaven, said Mrs. Wilkins. One doesn't. I was thinking how one longs to share this with those one loves, said Mrs. Arbuthnot. You mustn't long in heaven, said Mrs. Wilkins. You're supposed to be quite complete there. And it is heaven, isn't it, Rose? See how everything has been let in together, the dandelions and the irises, the vulgar and the superior, me and Mrs. Fisher, all welcome, all mixed up anyhow, and all so visibly happy and enjoying ourselves. Mrs. Fisher doesn't seem happy. Not visibly, anyhow, said Mrs. Arbuthnot, smiling. She'll begin soon. You'll see. Mrs. Arbuthnot said she didn't believe that after a certain age people began anything. Mrs. Wilkins said she was sure no one, however old and tough, could resist the effects of perfect beauty. Before many days, perhaps on the hours, they would see Mrs. Fisher bursting out into every kind of exuberance. I'm quite sure, said Mrs. Wilkins, that we've got to heaven, and once Mrs. Fisher realizes that that's where she is, she's bound to be different. You'll see. She'll leave off being ossified and go all soft and able to stretch, and we shall be quite— why— I shouldn't be surprised if we get quite fond of her. The idea of Mrs. Fisher bursting out into anything, she who seemed so particularly firmly fixed inside her buttons, made Mrs. Arbuthnot laugh. She condoned Lottie's loose way of talking of heaven, because in such a place, on such a morning, condonation was in the very air. Besides, what an excuse there was. And Lady Caroline, sitting where they had left her before breakfast on the wall, peeped over when she heard laughter, and saw them standing on the path below, and thought what a mercy it was they were laughing down there and had not come up and done it round her. She disliked jokes at all times, but in the morning she hated them, especially close up, especially crowding in her ears. She hoped the originals were on their way out for a walk, and not their way back from one. They were laughing more and more. What could they possibly find to laugh at? 
she looked down at the tops of their heads with a very serious face, for the thought of spending a month with laughers was a grave one, and they, as though they felt her eyes, turned suddenly and looked up. The dreadful geniality of those women. She shrank away from their smiles and wavings, but she could not shrink out of sight without falling into the lilies. She neither smiled nor waved back, and turning her eyes to the more distant mountains, surveyed them carefully, till the two, tired of waving, moved away along the path and turned the corner and disappeared. This time they both did notice that they had been met with at least unresponsiveness. "'If we weren't in heaven,' said Mrs. Wilkins serenely, "'I should say we had been snubbed. "'But as nobody snubs anybody there, "'of course we can't have been.' "'Perhaps she is unhappy,' said Mrs. Arbuthnot. "'Whatever it is, she'll get over it here,' "'said Mrs. Wilkins with conviction. "'We must try and help her,' said Mrs. Arbuthnot. "'Oh, but nobody helps anybody in heaven. "'That's finished with. "'You don't try to be or do. "'You simply are.' "'Well, Mrs. Arbuthnot wouldn't go into that. "'Not here, not today. "'The vicar, she knew, would have called Lottie's talk levity, "'if not profanity. "'How old he seemed from here. "'An old, old vicar.' "'They left the path.' and clambered down the olive terraces, down and down, to where at the bottom the warm, sleepy sea heaved gently among the rocks. There a pine tree grew close to the water, and they sat under it, and a few yards away was a fishing boat lying motionless and green-bellied on the water. The ripples of the sea made little gurgling noises at their feet, they screwed up their eyes to be able to look into the blaze of light beyond the shade of their tree. The hot smell from the pine needles and from the cushions of wild thyme that padded the spaces between the rocks, and sometimes a smell of pure honey from a clump of warm irises up behind them in the sun puffed across their faces. Very soon Mrs. Wilkins took her shoes and stockings off, and let her feet hang in the water. After watching her a minute, Mrs. Arbuthnot did the same. Their happiness was then complete. Their husbands would not have known them. They left off talking. They ceased to mention heaven. They were just cups of acceptance. Meanwhile, Lady Caroline, on her wall, was considering her position— the garden on the top of the wall was a delicious garden, but its situation made it insecure and exposed to interruptions. At any moment the others might come and want to use it, because both the hall and the dining room had doors opening straight into it. Perhaps, thought Lady Caroline, she could arrange that it should be solely hers. Mrs. Fisher had the battlements, delightful with flowers, and a watchtower all to herself, besides having snatched the one really nice room in the house. There were plenty of places the originals could go to. She had herself seen at least two other little gardens, while the hill the castle stood on was itself a garden with walks and seats. 
Why should not this one spot be kept exclusively for her? She liked it. She liked it best of all. It had the Judas tree and an umbrella pine. It had the freesias and the lilies. It had a tamarisk beginning to flush pink. It had the convenient low wall to sit on. It had from each of its three sides the most amazing views. To the east the bay and mountains, to the north the village across the tranquil clear green water of the little harbour, and the hills dotted with white houses and orange groves. And to the west was the thin thread of land by which San Salvatore was tied to the mainland, and then the open sea, and the coastline beyond Genoa reaching away into the blue dimness of France. Yes, she would say she wanted to have this entirely to herself. How obviously sensible if each of them had their own special place to sit in apart. It was essential to her comfort that she should be able to be apart, left alone, not talked to. The others ought to like it best, too. Why heard? One had enough of that in England with one's relations and friends. Oh, the numbers of them! pressing on one continually. Having successfully escaped them for four weeks, why continue, and with persons having no earthly claim on one, to herd? She lit a cigarette. She began to feel secure. Those two had gone for a walk. There was no sign of Mrs. Fisher. How very pleasant this was. Somebody came out through the glass doors just as she was drawing a deep breath of security. Surely it couldn't be Mrs. Fisher wanting to sit with her. Mrs. Fisher had her battlements. She ought to stay on them, having snatched them. It would be too tiresome if she wouldn't, and wanted not only to have them in her sitting-room, but to establish herself in this garden as well. No, it wasn't Mrs. Fisher, it was the cook. She frowned. Was she going to have to go on ordering the food? Surely one or other of those two waving women would do that now. The cook, who had been waiting in increasing agitation in the kitchen, watching the clock getting nearer to lunch, time, while she still was without knowledge of what lunch was to consist of, had gone at last to Mrs. Fisher, who had immediately waved her away. She then wandered about the house seeking a mistress, any mistress, who would tell her what to cook, and finding none, and at last, directed by Francesca, who always knew where everybody was, came out to Lady Caroline. Domenica had provided this cook. She was Costanza, the sister of that one of his cousins who kept a restaurant down at the piazza. She helped her brother in his cooking when she had no other job, and knew every sort of fat, mysterious Italian dish such as the workmen of Castagneto, who crowded the restaurant at midday, and the inhabitants of Mezzago, when they came over on Sundays, loved to eat. She was a fleshless spinster of fifty, grey-haired, nimble, rich of speech, and thought Lady Caroline more beautiful than anyone she had ever seen. And so did Domenico, and so did the boy Giuseppe, who helped Domenico and was besides his nephew. And so did the girl Angela, who helped Francesca and was besides Domenico's niece. 
and so did Francesca herself. Domenico and Francesca, the only two who had seen them, thought the two ladies who arrived last night very beautiful. But compared to the fair young lady who arrived first, they were as candles to the electric light that had lately been installed, and as the tin tubs in the bedrooms to the wonderful new bathroom their master had had arranged on his last visit. Lady Caroline scowled at the cook. The scowl, as usual, was transformed on the way into what appeared to be an intent and beautiful gravity, and Costanza threw up her hands and took the saints aloud to witness that here was the very picture of the Mother of God. Lady Caroline asked her crossly what she wanted, and Costanza's head went on one side with delight at the sheer music of her voice. She said, after waiting a moment in case the music was going to continue, for she didn't wish to miss any of it, that she wanted orders. She had been to the Signorina's mother, but in vain. She is not my mother, repudiated Lady Caroline angrily, and her anger sounded like the regretful wail of a melodious orphan. Costanza poured forth pity. She too, she explained, had no mother. Lady Caroline interrupted with the curt information that her mother was alive and in London. Costanza praised God and the saints that the young lady did not yet know what it was like to be without a mother. Quickly enough did misfortunes overtake one. No doubt the young lady already had a husband. No, said Lady Caroline icily. Worse than jokes in the morning did she hate the idea of husbands. And everybody was always trying to press them on her. All her relations, all her friends, all the evening papers. After all, she could only marry one, anyhow. But she would think from the way everybody talked, and especially those persons who wanted to be husbands, that she could marry at least a dozen. Her soft, pathetic, no, made Costanza, who was standing close to her, well with sympathy. Poor little one, said Costanza, moved actually to pat her encouragingly on the shoulder. Take hope. There is still time. For lunch, said Lady Caroline, freezingly, marveling as she spoke that she should be patted, she who had taken so much trouble to come to a place, remote and hidden, where she could be sure that among other things of a like oppressive nature, Pattings also were not. We will have. Costanza became businesslike. She interrupted with suggestions, and her suggestions were all admirable and all expensive. Lady Caroline did not know they were expensive and fell in with them at once. They sounded very nice. Every sort of young vegetables and fruits came into them, and much butter. And a great deal of cream, and incredible numbers of eggs. Costanza said enthusiastically at the end, as a tribute to this acquiescence, that of the many ladies and gentlemen she had worked for on temporary jobs such as this, she preferred the English ladies and gentlemen. She more than preferred them. They roused devotion in her, for they knew what to order, they did not skimp, they refrained from grinding down the faces of the poor.
From this Lady Caroline concluded that she had been extravagant, and promptly countermanded the cream. Costanza's face fell, for she had a cousin who had a cow, and the cream was to have come from them both. "'And perhaps we'd better not have chickens,' said Lady Caroline. Costanza's face fell more, for her brother at the restaurant kept chickens in his backyard, and many of them were ready for killing. "'Also, do not order strawberries till I have consulted with the other ladies,' said Lady Caroline, remembering that it was only the first of April, and that perhaps people who lived in Hampstead might be poor, indeed must be poor.' or else why live in Hampstead? It is not I who am mistress here. Is it the old one? asked Costanza, her face very long. No, said Lady Caroline. Which of the other two ladies is it? Neither, said Lady Caroline. Then Costanza's smiles returned, for the young lady was having fun with her and making jokes. She told her so in her friendly Italian way, and was genuinely delighted. "'I never make jokes,' said Lady Caroline briefly. "'You'd better go, or lunch will certainly not be ready by half-past twelve. And these curt words came out sounding so sweet that Costanza felt as if kind compliments were being paid her, and forgot her disappointment about the cream and the chickens.' and went away all gratitude and smiles. This, thought Lady Caroline, will never do. I haven't come here to housekeep, and I won't. She called Costanza back. Costanza came running. The sound of her name in that voice enchanted her. I've ordered the lunch for today, said Lady Caroline, with the serious angel face that was hers when she was annoyed and I have also ordered the dinner, but from now on you will go to one of the other ladies for orders. I give no more. The idea that she would go on giving orders was too absurd. She never gave orders at home. Nobody there dreamed of asking her to do anything. That such a very tiresome activity should be thrust upon her here, simply because she happened to be able to talk Italian, was ridiculous. Let the originals give orders if Mrs. Fisher refused to. Mrs. Fisher, of course, was the one nature intended for such a purpose. She had the very air of a competent housekeeper. Her clothes were the clothes of a housekeeper, and so was the way she did her hair. Having delivered herself of her ultimatum with an acerbity that turned sweet on the way, and accompanied it by a peremptory gesture of dismissal, that had the grace and loving-kindness of a benediction. It was annoying that Costanza should only stand still with her head on one side, gazing at her in obvious delight. "'Oh, go away!' exclaimed Lady Caroline in English, suddenly exasperated. There had been a fly in her bedroom that morning which had stuck, just as Costanza was sticking. Only one, but it might have been a myriad. It was so tiresome from daylight on. It was determined to settle on her face, and she was determined it should not. Its persistence was uncanny. It woke her, and would not let her go to sleep again. She hit at it, and it eluded her without fuss or effort, and with an almost visible blandness, and she had only hit herself. 
it came back again instantly and with a loud buzz alighted on her cheek. She hit at it again and hurt herself while it skimmed gracefully away. She lost her temper and sat up in bed and waited, watching to hit at it and kill it. She kept on hitting at it, at last with fury and with all her strength, as if it were a real enemy deliberately trying to madden her, and it elegantly skimmed in and out of her blows, not even angry, to be back again the next instant. It succeeded every time in getting on to her face, and was quite indifferent how often it was driven away. That was why she had dressed and come out so early. Francesca had already been told to put a net over her bed, for she was not going to allow herself to be annoyed twice like that. People were exactly like flies. She wished there were nets for keeping them off, too. She hit at them with words and frowns, and like the fly, they slipped between her blows and were untouched. Worse than the fly, they seemed unaware that she had even tried to hit them. The fly at least did for a moment go away. With human beings, the only way to get rid of them was to go away herself. That was what, so tired, she had done this April. And having got here, having got close up to the details of life at San Salvatore, it appeared that here, too, she was not to be let alone. Viewed from London, there had seemed to be no details. San Salvatore from there seemed to be an empty, a delicious blank. Yet after only twenty-four hours of it, she was discovering that it was not a blank at all, and that she was having to ward off as actively as ever. Already she had been much stuck to. Mrs. Fisher had stuck nearly the whole of the day before, and this morning there had been no peace— not ten minutes uninterruptedly alone. Costanza, of course, had finally to go because she had to cook. But hardly had she gone before Domenico came. He came to water and tie up. That was natural, since he was the gardener. But he watered and tied up all the things that were nearest to her. He hovered closer and closer. He watered to excess. He tied plants that were as straight and steady as arrows— well, at least he was a man, and therefore not quite so annoying, and his smiling good morning was received with an answering smile, upon which Domenico forgot his family, his wife, his mother, his grown-up children, and all his duties, and only wanted to kiss the young lady's feet. He could not do that, unfortunately, but he could talk while he worked, and talk he did, voluminously pouring out every kind of information, illustrating what he said with gestures so lively that he had to put down the watering pot and thus delay the end of the watering. Lady Caroline bore it for a time, but presently was unable to bear it, and as he would not go, and she could not tell him to, seeing that he was engaged in his proper work, once again it was she who had to. She got off the wall and moved to the other side of the garden, where in a wooden shed were some comfortable low cane chairs. All she wanted was to turn one of these round with its back to Domenico and its front to the sea, towards Genoa. Such a little thing to want. One would have thought she might have been allowed to do that unmolested. 
but he, who watched her every moment, when he saw her approaching the chairs, darted after her and seized one, and asked to be told where to put it. Would she never get away from being waited on, being made comfortable, being asked where she wanted things put, having to say thank you? She was short with Domenico, who instantly concluded the sun had given her a headache, and ran in and fetched her a sunshade, and a cushion, and a footstool, and was skilful, and was wonderful, and was one of nature's gentlemen. She shut her eyes in a heavy resignation. She could not be unkind to Domenico. She could not get up and walk indoors, as she would have done if he had been one of the others. Domenico was intelligent and very competent. She had at once discovered that it was he who really ran the house, who really did everything. And his manners were definitely delightful, and he undoubtedly was a charming person. It was only that she did so much long to be let alone. If only, only she could be left quite quiet for this one month, she felt that she might perhaps make something of herself, after all. She kept her eyes shut, because then he would think she wanted to sleep and would go away. Domenico's romantic Italian soul melted within him at the sight, for having her eyes shut was extraordinarily becoming to her. He stood entranced, quite still, and she thought he had stolen away, so she opened them again. No, there he was, staring at her. Even he. There was no getting away from being stared at. I have a headache, she said, shutting them again. It is the sun, said Domenico, and sitting on the wall without a hat. I wish to sleep. See, si, signorina, he said sympathetically, and went softly away. She opened her eyes with a sigh of relief. The gentle closing of the glass doors showed her that he had not only gone quite away, but had shut her out in the garden so that she should be undisturbed. Now, perhaps, she would be alone till lunchtime. It was very curious, and no one in the world could have been more surprised than she herself, but she wanted to think. She had never wanted to do that before. Everything else that it is possible to do without too much inconvenience she had either wanted to do or had done at one period or another of her life. But not before had she wanted to think. She had come to San Salvatore with the single intention of lying comatose for four weeks in the sun, somewhere where her parents and friends were not, lapped in forgetfulness, stirring herself only to be fed, and she had not been there more than a few hours when this strange new desire took hold of her. There had been wonderful stars the evening before, and she had gone out into the top garden after dinner, leaving Mrs. Fisher alone over her nuts and wine, and sitting on the wall at the place where the lilies crowded their ghost heads, she had looked out into the gulf of the night, and it had suddenly seemed 
as if her life had been a noise all about nothing. She'd been intensely surprised. She knew stars and darkness did produce unusual emotions because, in others, she had seen them being produced, but they had not before done it in herself. A noise all about nothing. Could she be quite well? She had wondered. For a long while past she had been aware that her life was a noise, but it had seemed to be very much about something. A noise, indeed, about so much that she felt she must get out of earshot for a little or she would be completely and perhaps permanently deafened. But suppose it was only a noise about nothing. She had not had a question like that in her mind before. It had made her feel lonely. She wanted to be alone, but not lonely. That was very different. That was something that ached and hurt dreadfully right inside one. It was what one dreaded most. It was what made one go to so many parties. And lately even the parties had seemed once or twice not to be a perfectly certain protection. Was it possible that loneliness had nothing to do with circumstances, but only with the way one met them? Perhaps, she had thought, she'd better go to bed. She couldn't be very well. She went to bed, and in the morning, after she had escaped the fly and had her breakfast and got out again into the garden, there was this same feeling again, and in broad daylight. What's more, she'd had that really rather disgusting suspicion that her life till now had not only been loud but empty. Well, if that were so, and if her first twenty-eight years, the best ones, had gone just in meaningless noise, she'd better stop a moment and look round her, pause, as they said in tiresome novels, and consider— she hadn't got many sets of twenty-eight years. One more would see her growing very like Mrs. Fisher. Two more. She averted her eyes. Her mother would have been concerned if she had known. Her mother doted. Her father would have been concerned, too, for he also doted. Everybody doted. And then, melodiously obstinate, she had insisted on going off to entomb herself in Italy for a whole month, with queer people she had got out of an advertisement, refusing even to take her maid. The only explanation her friends could imagine was that poor Scrap, such was her name among them, had overdone it and was feeling a little nervy. Her mother had been distressed at her departure. It was such an odd thing to do, such a sign of disappointment. She encouraged the general idea of the verge of a nervous breakdown. If she could have seen her adored scrap, more delightful to look at than any other mother's daughter had ever yet been, the object of her utmost pride, the source of all her fondest hopes, sitting staring at the empty noonday Mediterranean, considering her three possible sets of twenty-eight years, she would have been miserable. To go away alone was bad, to think was worse. No good would come of the thinking of a beautiful young woman 
complications could come out of it in profusion, but no good. The thinking of the beautiful was bound to result in hesitations, in reluctances, in unhappiness all round. And here, if she could have seen her, sat her scrap, thinking quite hard. And such things, such old things, things nobody ever began to think till they were at least forty. End of chapter 8